know me, my name is Blake Castle, and I am privileged to serve on the missions team here at Heritage. Um, one of our responsibilities is to administer the Dollar for Missions Fund. And through that, um, once a month, we have a, uh, a time of giving. Uh, basically, uh, as you come in, you'll see baskets. And we ask that every person, every member of this church, would put in a dollar for each person in their family. Um, and as you, some of you probably know, half of that goes toward MASH, and the other half will go toward um, our missionary of the month. Well, um, if I were to ask you, where are the largest unreached people groups located? What would you say? Probably most of you would be talking about Asia or the 1040 window, uh, but most of you probably wouldn't think that one of the largest unreached people groups in the world actually exists among us. The fourth largest unreached people group is the deaf community. Kentucky has 110,000 deaf people, and we only have four church plants to reach that community in the entire state. Um, we're happy to say that one of those is Gospel Community Church, which meets in our own building over in the Old Sanctuary um, every Sunday afternoon. Pastor Danny Hinton um, planted that church about a year ago. They have seen some amazing successes. God has been pleased to bless that church plant. Um, they're even streaming uh, on the internet for a lot of people who live far away and don't have a deaf church near them. Um, and so through that endeavor, many people are being reached who would never otherwise have been reached. I want to read just a little account that uh, Pastor Denny sent to us <clears throat> just to give you an idea. Um, they, they were planted um, just about a year ago, and two weeks after their first service, during the preaching of the gospel, an individual fell to his knees and began to sign toward heaven, forgive me, Father, change me. As that service ended, the man who just an hour ago was weeping and repentant was sharing the gospel with a deaf and blind visitor who came for the first time. There in that youth room, a woman who by the world's standards was beyond reachable repented and came to faith in Christ in a beautiful display of what only God can do. Both were baptized the next Sunday. Next Sunday, uh, Pastor Danny is going to be here preaching for us. Um, this is a little earlier in the month than we would normally give the dollar for missions, but um, we are going to do that next Sunday just as an expression of love for Gospel Community Church and of support for their mission. So please remember, families, to bring a dollar for each member of your family to put in um, to go toward Gospel Community Church. Now, as we turn to the scripture reading, uh, we're going to be reading Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you have one of the Bibles from the back, that can be found on page 807. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, reads, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, it is a great joy to be with you this morning and also to anticipate um, our time together next week and with the Gospel Community Church as they're going to be with us on these first couple of rows. And so we'll get to experience worship with them and get to bless them financially. And um, I think the Lord will be pleased with all of that. We need to pray that he'll be manifest and present with us um, as we gather together with that church. Well, it's my joy if you're a guest with us. My name's Mark, I'm one of the pastors, and it's my joy to launch a new series this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. And this, this, this sermon series um, is going to take us most of 2016 to get through. We are going to take a break uh, in the middle of the year and probably teach on some other things and preach on some other things, but for the most part, we're going to take this book chapter by chapter, so we're not going to preach it in a macro sense, going just merely verse by verse, but we're going to try to preach a big scene or a chapter at a time and uh, pray for us that we'll be able to do that well. There's value in approaching the gospel that way and uh, taking it in smaller chunks is, is, is great and also taking it in some larger chunks. So we're trying to take it in the biggest chunks we can that, that we can still uh, give uh, good attention to and, and really help preach, preach helpfully. So this morning is Matthew chapter one and uh, if you're a guest, you picked a good Sunday to be with us because we'll be uh, journeying our way through the Gospel of Matthew these next several months together. Now, what I want to do this morning before I get into Matthew chapter 1 is lay out some of the reasons that we chose to preach this Gospel of Matthew. Why are we in this season of our church right now feeling led to take up a study of a gospel? Well, as Jonathan mentioned, Pastor Jonathan mentioned earlier this week, if you read the email, it's been about five years since we've made our way through a gospel narrative concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the last time we went through a gospel was the gospel of Mark. And this morning, we get to journey through the gospel of, started, or rather start a journey through the gospel of Matthew. But there are some underlying convictions that we have as pastors about why we return to the gospels on a fairly regular basis. And the main conviction is that because that in the gospel, we get an upfront view of the life of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 reminds us that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's as we look at Christ, as we behold him, as we watch him, as we fix our congregational and collective gaze on him, we are transformed by him. So we become what we behold. John Owen said, commenting on this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, wrote, 
that beholding the glory of Christ is one of the greatest privileges and advancements that believers are capable of in this world and that which is to come. It is that whereby they are first gradually conformed to it and then fixed in the eternal enjoyment of it. For here, in this life, beholding his glory, we are changed or transformed into the likeness of Christ, and hereafter we will be forever like him because we shall see him as he is. This is the life and reward of our souls. You ever think about that? The life and reward of your soul is to look at Jesus. James Allen Francis, another old writer, wrote concerning the glory of Jesus when he said he was born, talking about Jesus, in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never owned a house. He never went to college. He nev never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he stands as the central figure of the human race. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on earth as has this one solitary life. Amen. End quote. And we're all here this morning as living proof of that. The goal of this series then is to look at the person of Christ and to give us a reason to love him more. We can only love him more by knowing him better, which must go beyond a conceptual, doctrinal knowledge, but must go and move into a relational knowledge. To know him in the Bible can very often mean that we have a concern about something that involves not just our understanding, but our affections and the movements of our hearts and what we give our lives to and what we consider worth living for. So to know Jesus then means to know him in such a way that our affections are set upon him and that our wills are conformed to him. So let's approach this study of the Gospel of Matthew with wide open hearts, church, wide open hearts, longing to know Christ who first knew us. You might be thinking, well, isn't the whole Bible about Jesus? I mean, aren't we supposed to, as pastors and preachers, preach Christ no matter what text we're in, whether that be an Old Testament historical document or the wisdom literature of the Old Testament with Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes? I mean, aren't we supposed to preach Christ from the New Testament letters? Aren't we supposed to preach Christ from the book of Revelation? Well, of course, we're supposed to preach Christ from all those places. In fact, Jesus himself in Luke 24 taught us to do those things to look for him everywhere in Scripture. But here's why the Gospels are so important and why returning to them frequently is such a bedrock for our faith and so important for us to return to again and again. We need the Gospels, according to Jonathan Pennington, 
a professor over at Southern Seminary, and I agree with him when he says that we need the Gospels because encountering Jesus in narrative helps us grow in experiential knowledge of him. Encountering Jesus in narrative helps us not only know Jesus, but experience Jesus. In the Gospels, we encounter the Lord Jesus in the flesh in a way that we cannot in theological summaries of what he did, as important and valid as those theological summaries are. The followers of Jesus could have simply told us that Jesus was compassionate, that he was caring, that he welcomes children and Gentiles, and those are all potential and true apostolic statements, but they don't engage us or enable us to know Jesus in the same way we can when those same apostles give us in narrative form the words and the works of Jesus. We literally feel like we're there. Moreover, what it means to be compassionate and what it means to be welcoming and what it means to care and what it means to love is taken out of the abstract and put in the concrete to give us a deeper, fuller understanding of what and who Jesus is. So experience alone can bring that fullness of knowledge, and story enables us to gain life experience vicariously through those. And it is in the Gospels, brothers and sisters, and you know this if you spend any time in the Bible whatsoever, it is in the Gospels that we have a personal upfront encounter with Jesus Christ, and it is in the Gospels alone that we have that privilege. As much as we love and need the epistles, they're not enough. As much as we love and need the Old Testament, which finds its fulfillment in Christ, it's not enough. God didn't give us just those accounts. He gave us four narratives of Jesus Christ written by Matthew, a tax collector made disciple of Christ, John, one of his beloved close disciples who wrote letters and the book of Revelation, Mark, and Luke all give us perspectives on Jesus that we need. There's a reason why the fourfold gospel witness has stood at the head of the New Testament canon the very beginning of the New Testament, and why the Gospels have always been so beloved by God's people. It is because that in them, we encounter Christ in person. We learn not just about him and what he theologically accomplished for us, but we are supposed, and what we're supposed to do as a result of that, but we get to see the sweet lion and the roaring lamb in action, loving people, showing compassion, teaching, discipling, rebuking, correcting, suffering, ultimately dying, and rising again. So we encounter him in a way unique only to the Gospels. So let me conclude this first point on the reason that we're going through the Gospel of Matthew by just reminding us again that the doctrinal and moral truth that results from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is not enough. The Gospels are written so that we might experience firsthand the risen Christ, even as the original followers experienced him. And we can do so because of the abiding ministry of the Holy Spirit that remains with us. Make no mistake about it, 
brothers and sisters, Christianity is Christ. Bottom line, Christianity is Christ. Jesus Christ, God's perfect son, is the beloved of the Father, the song of the angels, the logic of creation, the great mystery of godliness, the bottomless spring of life, comfort, and joy. We were made, as you've heard many times, to know him, to love him, and to find our hearts rest and contentment in him and him alone. Paul said it, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. Christianity is Christ. What is more, Philippians 3.8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Life is found in Christ and in Christ alone, the author and source of all life, and if we know him rightly, we'll find nothing so desirable, so delightful as him. So the center, the cornerstone, the jewel of Christianity is not an idea. It's not a system. It's not even a thing. It's not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ. So I'm going to dare to say, in fact, that most of our Christian problems and areas that we struggle with in our lives come precisely through forgetting or marginalizing Christ in our lives. Just let live that out for a little while, okay? If you don't come in being persuaded of that proposition, just live in it for a while. That most of our problems and struggles as believers and as disciples of Christ are as a result of our forgetfulness and our marginalization of the importance of, that Christ is to have in our lives. Amid all the debates and all the disagreements that were part of the Reformation, this is what John Calvin thought was our problem. He says, for how comes it, only John Calvin would say it that way, even though he didn't say it in English, for how comes it that we are carried about with so many strange doctrines, but because the excellence of Christ is not perceived by us? For Christ alone makes all other things suddenly vanish, Hence, there is nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on myths with the view of obscuring Christ because he knows that by this means the way is opened up for every kind of falsehood. Yes, therefore, it's the, it, this is the only means of retaining as well as restoring pure doctrine to place Christ before the view such as he is with all his blessings that his excellence might be truly perceived. End quote. So to consider Christ, that we might become like him, this is the goal. This is the goal of all preaching, but especially as we journey through the gospel of Matthew. I know I speak for Pastor Jonathan and myself, and whoever might join us in the series, that our chief goal is to know Christ and to be changed by that knowledge of Christ. That we might that he might become more central to us, that we might know him better, that we might treasure him more, that we might learn to enter into his joy that happily what would happen is just how we will honor the Father. Think about this. This is how the Father is honored. You want the Father to be honored by our church? You want the Father to be honored in your life? First John, 5, or John chapter 5, verse 23 tells you how. By sharing his own delight in his Son. You will please the Father as you delight in the Son. 
One final quote before we come to Matthew 1. Robert Murray McShane, in counseling a friend, wrote this advice when he said, quote, learn much of the Lord Jesus. Look, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He's altogether lovely, such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. And that's what we're about in this series. That's what we're about. So with that in mind, with the reasons laid out for why we're going to spend time in the Gospel of Matthew, let's come now to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to look at this whole chapter this morning kind of in a flyover way. It's a, it's a great chapter. It's wonderful. I was blessed in the study of it this week. And what I want to do for the second point here, I've already talked about the reason for Matthew. Now I want to talk about what the point of Matthew 1 is. Because when I was coming into the study this week and thinking through this text, it was not the point I originally envisioned, which is good, right? We want Scripture to change our, our minds about things. And when we come to things, we have certain presuppositions and assumptions about what we're going to encounter. And then lo and behold, we don't encounter that at all. Or we encounter it in a different way than we, we saw. And that's what I saw this week. I, I asked the question, why does Matthew begin with a genealogy and a birth narrative? That's what chapter 1 is. We didn't read chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, but it's a genealogy that traces Jesus Christ through Abraham and his descendants, through David and his descendants, all the way to Joseph. And as I was encountering that and reading that, it just, it just struck me, again, here we have a, a, a genealogy and a birth narrative as the way in which Matthew, the disciple of Christ, cho chooses by, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to lead off his gospel, his record of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Why doesn't Matthew just go right to the ministry of Jesus, right to preaching and teaching and healing and miracles? Well, we have to understand something. We need to start with a little bit of background, and I want to begin with maybe what will appear to your ears as somewhat of a shocking proposition, all right? Let me give it to you and just let it sit on you for a second the way it hit me this week. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who became incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal Son of God had no inherent right to be the king of his people. The eternal son of God had no inherent right to be the king of his people. Now let me define each part of that. By the eternal son of God, I mean the second person of the Trinity who became incarnate by the Virgin Mary in Jesus of Nazareth. By Messiah or by king, I mean the anointed king over God's people, the one whom God had promised in the Old Testament would be the rescuer and the ruler of his kingdom forever. And by inherent right, I mean native authority. So in summary, my proposition is this. God, in the person of his eternal son, Jesus, or the, the eternal son of God, had no right 
humanly speaking, to become Israel's king. Even though he was the ultimate sovereign of the universe, he could not merely take on flesh and take the throne, at least not without violating some covenants that God had made in the Old Testament. And God is not going to violate covenants that he's made. He's far too righteous and far too integrous to make a move like that. It would violate his own nature. It would violate his integrity. It would violate his holiness. God's not going to do that. So what's the obstacle then? The obstacle is that God made a covenant with David specifying that one of David's descendants would sit on Israel's throne forever. We're not going to turn there, but it's in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 6 and Psalm 89. God makes a covenant with David that, not, that, that there will not lack a man to sit on his throne. Now, in a sense, God had always been Israel's savior. He had always been its great king. But once he made that covenant with David, he is tethering the Messiah to the Davidic line. All right, So the Messiah, the Christ, the one who's to come, the king, must come through the family of David. Nevertheless, if not, then God violates his own covenant. He can't do that. So in Matthew 1, what we find is what would seem to be a very little thing done by a man, a fairly little consequence. But in the grand scheme of things, it meant everything. Here was a man that none of the Bible's on our shelves, saw fit to mention in any of the headers the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ. But here's a man whose obedience or disobedience was the domino that once stood between heaven and hell for you and me. Had he pushed it the other way, we would not and could not have been saved. Of course, I'm not talking about Jesus of Nazareth. I'm talking about his earthly father, Joseph, the son of David. Now, most of the time when we read Matthew 1, we focus on Jesus, and rightly so. I mean, he's the point of the gospel. It's not the gospel of Joseph. But Joseph is the main character here. And I'm going to show you that in just a moment. Joseph is the linchpin. Joseph is the, the guy who's... who's, who's actions basically either rescue this salvation plan of God or forfeit it. Sometimes we look at the genealogy, we focus on the virgin birth, we focus on the incarnation, the wonder that God became a man, and that's all right, and we should focus on that. But if we're not careful, we can lose the main point. The main point is that Joseph... And his actions were so critical to the salvation plan of God to preserve a man on the throne that would come as a son of David. The main character in this story is Joseph. It's his genealogy that Matthew provides in verses 1 through 16. It's he who receives the angelic message. It's he who takes Mary as his wife. And it's he who names him Jesus. Look at chapter 1, verses 16, verses 16 through 17. Concluding the genealogy, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. This is a genealogy of Joseph first, not a genealogy of Jesus first. 
It is a genealogy of Jesus because of Jesus' adoption by Joseph. And he's a part of the family now. So it is, it is right to call this the genealogy of Jesus Christ, but I, I don't want you to miss my emphasis. My emphasis is on Joseph and the, the, the role that he was playing as a son, as the son of Jacob, attached all the way back as we read through this resume, as we read through this genealogy, all the way back to David and Abraham. So Matthew 1, it, here's the goal of Matthew 1. Okay, if I had to summarize it in a sentence, what's Matthew chapter 1 trying to get at? It's this, Matthew 1 is trying to demonstrate Jesus' legal claim to the throne of David, emphasizing Jesus' legal descent from David and Abraham. It's trying to say that this king who was born in a manger has a right to that throne, and not just because he was the son of God born in a manger, but because he's a son of David through the adoption of Joseph. Now, you might be thinking, wait, Mary was a descendant of David. Read Luke chapter 3. You got her genealogy there. It's clear that her family, too, descended from David. So why does Joseph need to adopt Jesus to bring him in to the family of David? I mean, Mary's in the family. Well, remember this, first of all, that Joseph, at the time of this writing in Matthew 1, was merely betrothed to Mary, the woman who was pregnant with Jesus, but that wasn't good enough. Jesus could not claim the right to sit on David's throne as a son of Mary. The problem was that no man connected Jesus to David's family tree. The link that Mary provided was sufficient to gain citizenship in Israel, but not to give him access to the throne. That needed to come through his father. So Mary's fiance, Joseph, had that access. He was a son of David by birth. But again, Joseph wasn't Jesus' earthly father. And how could he be? We can't have a savior who's merely a man. We need a savior who is a God-man and who is holy and wouldn't inherit the sinful nature of Joseph. We need one who is born of God and born of woman, according to Galatians 3, to redeem us from under the law and to purchase us and adopt us as his sons. So the real point of the story then is to establish a link between Jesus and David, which Matthew did by explaining how Joseph extends his genealogy to Jesus through adoption, which, was not which Jesus was not born with a right to the throne, but he gained that right because Joseph obeyed God. Now, we, should, we owe Joseph a great debt of thanks. Now, what he did, of course, was work out the unfolding counsel of God. But make no mistake, it doesn't talk about any of that in Matthew chapter 1. We know who God, God's the author behind the scenes. He's working through providence to bring his son into the world. But I want you to notice how meticulous and careful God is to uphold the terms of his covenant that he made with David. How meticulous and careful God is. He brings the Lord Jesus into a family, his eternal son. He brings into a family that is born, and he's born through a descendant of David, Mary, and he's adopted by a descendant of David, Joseph, and thereby gains a right to the throne of David. That's Matthew 1. That's the point of Matthew 1. Now, what I want us to do 
is look at Joseph for just a moment before we come to some application at the end. I want us to focus in on verses 18 and following the, the, the passage that Blake read for us and just behold a couple things about Joseph, okay? So let's first of all, let's see his righteousness, okay? He's a godly man. He's a godly man. Look at verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary, the mother of Jesus, had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Just imagine, put yourself here. Let's experience this, okay? Put yourself there. He's betrothed, which is not just engaged. I mean, this is commitment. This is marriage is on the way. The the down payment has been made. We're ready, to, we're ready to roll. And Joseph and Mary's wedding day is approaching. They've not come together physically. And all of a sudden, he sees that she's pregnant. First of all, just the personal devastation of that, right? Just the personal devastation of Joseph. Mary, I love you. We're going to be married. What are you doing? And Mary's own confusion. I, I don't know. I, I, Joseph, I swear, nothing happened. I didn't do anything. There was an angelic visit. Now he thinks his wife's not only, you know, she's, she's out of her mind. And the shame that's going to come to them for their actions perceived by the community. I mean, Mary's going to stand up in front of the elders and say, listen, you guys don't really understand, okay? I want to respectfully speak to you as a teenage girl. Joseph and I have not known each other. We, we have not slept together. I, am, I have been, this is a baby that's born of the Holy Spirit. I mean, they've got no categories for that. I mean, could you come up with a little more clever cover-up than that? You're just going to throw out that, you know, you're impregnated by the third person of the Trinity? Just going to throw that out there? No. I mean, that's not going to make any sense. Joseph looking at his bride-to-be as pregnant by another man from, what he, from his perspective. So, but how does Joseph respond? I mean, this is where his righteousness is demonstrated. He seeks to divorce her quietly so as not to cause a scandal and so to save her from the punishment that would be coming from the courts, possibly even the taking of her life. So he seeks to avoid that, but notice what a righteous man does in this case. He doesn't marry her. He's not going to go forward and marry Mary. He's not going to marry her. He's going to seek to divorce her from his betrothal quietly and try to avoid any undue harm or shame that would come. So Joseph's heart's not a hard heart here. It's not like a, oh, yeah, right, liar. Get me the paperwork. That's not what he's doing. He listens to her. He takes what she's saying. He doesn't understand it. Surely he sees some possibility that she's wrong and that she's covering something up. But nevertheless, his heart is not hard toward toward her. He knows and he loves God's law. 
And something else about Joseph is that he seeks to put Mary away with kindness and mercy and graciousness. And not to, in the words of Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, he's unwilling to put her to shame. So he's resolved to divorce her quietly. So that's where we're set. Now, here's the thing. If this divorce goes forward, we have no savior. Because we have no king. We have no son of David. So this angel's hightailing it (laughs) right down to this situation, and he's going to correct this. Wait, Joseph. So we see this revelation that comes. Notice what the angel says in verse 20. But as he considered these things, Joseph's thinking it over. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Why do they throw that in there? Call him Joseph, son of David? Because what he's about to do would alter alter God's salvation plan. So he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He is going to be David's promised king. He is going to be the long-expected one, the deliverer, the rescuer, the savior. All this would take place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. In Isaiah chapter 7, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he comes, the angel comes and says, Joseph, don't panic. She really is a virgin. She really is impregnated by the Holy Spirit. She really is going to give birth to the Savior. But you are critical in this. You must marry her. Go forward with your plans. Do not divorce her. What a, what a relief that must have been to Joseph to hear. And also, what a terrifying prospect that must have been to Joseph. I mean, it's a mixture of emotions, isn't it? It's, it's, it's hearing this weight being lifted off of me. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that, it's, that she's not lying to me. Thank you that we get to bear the Messiah? Nobody's going to believe us. This is, I mean, we're going to have to get out of town. This was not on the target registry. (laughs) This was not in the cards. This is not the way we envisioned our marriage and the birth narrative and how we would write the story of our son. This is not, this was not in our, this was not in the plans. God, you read the script wrong. Here's the script. And God says, no, that's not the script. This is the script. Now listen, Joseph, the angel says, I want you to call him Yeshua. I want you to call him Jesus, the Lord saves. I want you to know that Isaiah 7, that prophecy about a virgin being conceived, while it was typologically fulfilled in Isaiah's day, 
Nevertheless, it is ultimately being fulfilled right now. That Isaiah's prophecy back then in Isaiah 7, it had a temporary in-time fulfillment, but it also had a much greater purpose. And that was to communicate this to you, that this son whom you are going to adopt and that Mary is going to give birth to is going to be Emmanuel. He is going to be God with us. The weight of this, the stress, they're kids. They're kids, all right? These are not 30-year-olds. Mary's probably a teenager. Joseph, if he's, a, if he's not a teenager, he's barely out of it. And they're hearing this, and this is huge, and this is heavy. How does Joseph respond? Notice verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He did exactly what the angel told him to do. And praise God that he did it. Amen. Praise God that Joseph, our brother, Joseph, stood with Mary and stood with God and did an uncomfortable thing. We're going to meet him one day. We're going to see him. We're going to get a shake hands with Joseph. We've got a finite number of people with an infinite amount of time. We're going to see him. We're going to get a meal together. And, he, and he's going to be sinless, so he's not going to be sick of sharing the story. <laughs> right? Because if he were in this life, he's like, okay, let me, can I just talk about this in front of the whole church and get it done one time? All right, yeah, it was a tough time. You know, God helped us through it. But no, he's going to be able to marvel anew over and over again that he was a part of God's redemptive purpose and that God gave him the grace to receive his providence into his life and to do exactly what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. So he took his wife. He knew her not, didn't have sex with her until she had given birth to Jesus. I mean, the self-control, the commitment to God's purpose, his resolve to be a man of integrity and righteousness is fantastic. It's glorious. It's evidence that God is merciful. So the instructions were clear. Marry Jesus, or sorry, not marry Jesus. Marry, marry Mary and adopt Jesus. So when Joseph awoke, he did just that. Now, let me conclude with some application for us from this. I want to speak a word to those of you who are disciples of Jesus and those of you who are not yet disciples of Jesus. Let me speak to those of you who are disciples of Jesus here this morning, who walk with him, who have entrusted your sin to him, who have given your sin over, who have received the righteousness of Christ. You are walking in imperfect but real obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's your Savior, and he's your hope, and he's your Lord. Let me say a word to you. Just like God used Joseph, God is going to use you. Now, maybe not in the huge, redemptive way that Joseph was used. <laughs> There's no way that, that event's getting repeated again. Praise God. But nevertheless, God uses the daily mess of people's lives 
to accomplish great and glorious things. He's doing big things. He's doing huge things. He's doing immeasurable things. You probably won't know about most of them. But he's doing great things with you. God had a specific purpose for Joseph. He has a specific purpose for his people. And if you dedicate yourself to him, to walk in righteousness, to trust him when you don't understand what he's doing, you'll probably recognize his purpose when you see it. And when you do, you are an instrument through which God is accomplishing and advancing his redemptive purpose. I mean, because of Joseph's act of obedience, because of his willingness to not divorce the woman to whom he was betrothed and go forward with the marriage and adopt Jesus as his own son, we have a savior of the world who has a right to claim the covenant promises made to Abraham and David and who is the fulfillment of the scriptures. The promises to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ because of what Joseph did. The promises to David are fulfilled in Christ because of what Joseph did. The promises to Israel are fulfilled in Christ because of what Joseph did. The hope of salvation and the deliverance of sins from our sins is possible because of what Joseph did. So, Christian, be like Joseph. Be a righteous man or woman, willing to obey even when you don't understand. God doesn't owe you an explanation, Christian. You owe him your obedience. You owe him your life, even when it doesn't make sense. He doesn't owe you an explanation. He doesn't owe me an explanation. We owe him everything. We also must be willing, Christians, to risk our reputation. Who cares what the world says? They decided whose praise of them was going to matter. They were willing to be misunderstood. They were willing to count their reputation as loss. We know what people are going to say about us. We don't care. We will love them. We will serve them. We will seek to proclaim this gospel, what we know some people are just not going to believe us. This pregnancy ruined both of their reputations. It ruined it. And God didn't really care about ruining their reputation. Because he is worth it. Also, Christian, there needs to be a willingness to deny yourself. There needs to be a willingness to deny yourself. We see this with Joseph. I mean, even after he got the word from the angel, he didn't say, all right, Mary, I've been waiting long enough. Let's go hop in bed. No. In this perverse and sexualized culture in which we live, Christian, are you going to stand out and be different? Are you going to cave under lesser pressure? Can you be holy? Can you not click on pornography? Can you be faithful to your spouse? Can you walk with Jesus? You can. You can. And you can shine as a light in this crooked and perverse generation which desperately needs to see a godly sexual ethic that brings life and joy and happiness to people. 
The church has for too long painted a gross picture of sexuality, both by our capitulation to culture and our abject unwillingness to invest in the health of our marriages. So as a result, the world gets, ah, one woman, one man, all time. That's bunk. That's crazy, man. But church, we have an opportunity to be like Joseph here, to demonstrate righteousness, to obey God, even when it goes against our sinful fleshly inclinations. We're not going to do that perfectly. That's why we have the people from their sins. Jesus for will save his people from their sins. So don't let your past or your present or your yesterday, well, I blew it. No hope for me. I might as well just give in to the culture and go with the tide. No, you go back to Jesus. You confess your sin. You thank him that he is the savior of sinners like you and me. And you receive his forgiveness afresh and you walk in freedom. And you fight the flesh, according to Romans 8, 13, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by other brothers and sisters in the church helping you in that fight. So there's a willingness to deny self. There's also a willingness to embrace inconvenience. We'll see that more in chapter two when Jonathan takes us into that in a couple of weeks. We'll see how they embraced inconvenience for the sake of this birth. And that whole, the whole last seven weeks that we walk through in our Back to Basics series, when we talked about our identity as disciples and members and, and, and family, being in community with each other and serving each other and witnessing for Christ, all that is calling you to embrace a life of inconvenience. It's not convenient. None of that's convenient. It's not convenient to lay my life down, my money down, my time, my time down, myself down. It's not convenient to do that. But when Jesus calls a man, according to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he bids him come and die. And that's what we are, Christians. We're the walking dead. We, are, we have given ourselves, not, we're not zombies, but we are those who are crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's you, that's Paul, that's all of God, Christ's disciples. And we pray that you be encouraged by that and provoked by Joseph's reaction, or actions. All right, let me say a word to those of you who are yet to be disciples, and I want to invite our music team to come up as well as I conclude. If you're not yet a disciple of Jesus Christ, I've got good news for you this morning. I've got really good news for you. If you will embrace the humility that it takes to say, I am broken, sinful, and deserving of hell, which in your pride you don't want to do. But if you are willing to say that, that I'm created by God, I'm broken because of Adam's sin and my own sin, I'm sinful, I'm rebellious, I need God's grace. If you will take that posture then your sinfulness does not disqualify you from God's love. Because this genealogy, which we didn't take time to read all of it, we just read a couple verses at the end, this genealogy is full of sin. I mean, if you were to take these individuals that are mentioned in this genealogy in chapter one and go read the Old Testament accounts, you're like, they're in Jesus' family tree? Are you kidding me? Prostitutes in Jesus' family tree. 
I mean, read about Tamar in Genesis 36. Read about Rahab. Read about David in verse 6 and the wife of Uriah, otherwise known as Bathsheba, and that whole situation in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Read that. Read that. And you will see that Jesus' family tree is filled with sinners. That's because Jesus came for sinners. He came for outcasts. He's not ashamed to identify with the outcasts as their brother and make them a part of his family. His line includes former prostitutes and sinners because he would bear their sin and put it away forever. And no matter who you are or what you've done, there is room in his family for you. This genealogy proves it. There is no one who is outside the mercy and forgiveness of Christ. He came for you. He's not ashamed to call you his brother if you're not ashamed to call him yours. If you're willing to identify with Jesus Christ and profess your faith in him and get in that water and tell everybody in this church and this whole world that you belong to him, he will identify with you. And you will have eternal life and you will not ever perish he will hold you in his hand your whole life and give you an inheritance and a glory that you can't even begin to imagine. So I call you, respond to Christ. Don't go through Matthew and wait. Turn your head down to the floor, put your hands over your head during this song and pray to receive Jesus. Repent of your sin, cry out to him, ask him to forgive you. He will receive you, you'll be in the family, you'll be in the water, you will be the happiest person in the world. Do it, don't wait. You don't know what's going to happen. Now is, the, now is the opportunity. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. Jesus is not first a moral teacher who's here to tell you how to be righteous and not have sex and just try to be a better person. He's here to deliver you from your self-worship. He's here to deliver you into a better life. If you will turn from your sin, if you'll receive him, He's fully God. He's fully man. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. He's yours if you will take him. And we pray that you would. Let's stand together. We'll close in prayer in a song. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for this account of your life, for all that we've considered this morning, for the opportunity to understand you and who you are and what you've done. Thank you for giving us this narrative which you have inspired by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that we are here this morning and we're able to rest in this good news and hear it afresh and be reminded of it again. God, how we pray that you would make us, make us to be like our brother Joseph who was an imperfect person. More so, we pray that you would make us like our elder brother, Jesus. And that those who are not yet part of our family, who are here this morning under the sound of my voice in our presence, that they would take this opportunity to receive Christ. That to all who did receive him, 1 John 1, 12, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, there's a title, to become the children of God. We thank you that Joseph adopted Jesus and gave him a title to the son of David. We thank you that Jesus adopts us and gives us a title to eternal life in the family of God. We praise you and we bless you. Receive our worship now in response to the great things that you have done for us. We pray this in your name, amen.